I wouldn't have survived six months using at the level that I was using had I not stopped. So definitely, I mean, number one, my life was salvaged because of the interruption of sobriety. Uh, two, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it has dictated um, the trajectory of everything I've become since then. All right, we are here today with Kenny Sipes. Kenny is a former youth pastor that succeeded in mobilizing people to worldwide mission work where he specialized in projects from home restoration to investing in the lives of people. This led him to begin the Roosevelt Coffee House to mobilize justice through an everyday experience. After doing relief work in Africa and Cambodia, Kenny was struck with the dire need of freedom, water, and food in underdeveloped countries and decided to take action. Roosevelt Coffee House was created as the nonprofit coffee shop to fund initiatives to do life-saving work in the locations he had experienced firsthand. Kenny began as the president and founder of the Roosevelt Coffee House, where he secured the nonprofit determination, led all fundraising, secured the location of the coffee house, established the social media identity, as well as citywide networking, hired all staff and baristas, created all internal systems, managed the entire experience of the Roosevelt Coffee House, and led the giving of over $125,000 to date. The ultimate success and excellent reputation of the Roosevelt Coffee House resulted in the idea of branching off into the roasting industry. Kenny and the Roosevelt Coffee House team had the idea to eliminate the middleman out of the coffee purchasing to increase sales, maximize profits, to save even more lives. The paramount goal of Roosevelt Coffee is to provide the coffee house with its own brand of coffee, fund long-term employment for the core staff, and to secure wholesale accounts where the coffee shop can serve locally sourced, justice-minded coffee. And I'm super proud to say that Kenny is a partner with us at Gravity. He has, in many ways, been big part of the energy and life that exists at Gravity. And we're super appreciative for uh, your partnership there. And yeah, welcome. It's good to have you today, Kenny. Thanks for taking time. Hey, thanks for having me. I, I didn't. Uh, I don't know where that wordy uh, biography came from, but uh, I don't even know who wrote it. <laughs> well, uh, it, it, I I think it's accurate, and um, you know, I think it's really good to to have people hear all of that um, because I don't know how many people really know what's behind Roosevelt. You guys do a great job at really promoting that you are not just a typical coffee shop. But the the shop, you know, kind of stands on its own. Um, this is just my kind of view of it. It's got a great vibe. It has all the things that the coffee shop should have. The quality of the coffee is 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 outstanding. You know, the staff is is you know makes you feel like it's home. It's really operates at a super high level. But it's got this you know real mission and purpose behind it that uh, really separates it. So I think it's helpful for people to kind of hear some of that. Good. Yeah. And, um, and I want to really kind of back all the way up as we do on the podcast so people can hear your journey towards that. It's, it's a unique one. You know, uh, a nonprofit coffee shop is a unique thing to begin with. And you kind of, how you arrived at it, I think is really special. And, um, you know, kind of, highlights exactly what we're doing on this podcast. People that have real purpose-driven lives that have had a lot of success, but you know, kind of came to it through a journey. So love to kind of share your journey with our listeners if we don't, if you don't mind kind of backing all the way up and, and tell me a little bit about kind of your early days, where you're from, what the kind of family dynamic was like, you know, kind of how you were brought into this world. Sure, sure. Um, you know, the funny thing is, I know you well enough. We're good enough buddies to realize that we're we're sports enemies. I was uh, I grew up and was born into a Minnesota Viking Minnesota Viking season ticket holding family. Um, and I know you're a Packer man. So, uh, well, I, I will clarify that I'm a 
I'm a recent Packer fan just based on us doing work there, but I actually grew up a Browns fan. So just for the record, I'm really a Browns fan. I don't know if that's any worse, uh, but you know, it might be worse. I don't know. That's great. Um, So no, I'm an only child. I grew up in Minnesota. I I lived there till I was 11. Um, But um, this, you know, pre, you know, I'm pretty old. So pre nine 11, um, you know, flying as a, uh, child of a employee of an airline was a pretty beneficial thing. So, I mean, literally we lived in Minnesota. My grandparents lived in Wisconsin. We literally flew every weekend to Wisconsin out my grandparents because planes were never that full and it was, you know, free as an employee. So, um, and then to say that all is that when I moved to Columbus, Ohio, when I was 11 years old, my parents had season tickets uh, to the Vikings for another 10 years. So we would fly back a couple times a year and still go to Vikings games and twins games and, and those kinds of things. So, um, so grew up as an only child, pretty spoiled, as you could tell, middle class family. I mean, we weren't, we weren't rolling in any dough, but we, we were comfortable. And then, um, when I hit my teen years, I was, I was a troublemaker. So by the time I was 17, I was so involved in drugs and alcohol that I was arrested and, and taken into uh, drug rehab, uh, what is now OSU East, uh, used to be St. Anthony's Hospital and housed uh, the Drug Treatment Center Talbot Hall. So at 17 years old, I was uh, locked up and put in treatment uh, until uh, for 40 days, uh, usually 33. But the last time I ever used drugs or alcohol, um, somebody snuck in LSD into the treatment center and uh, we got busted. We all got high and we all got in trouble and we all had and for me, I had a transformative moment that changed everything I'm about. And all right, I gotta pause you there because that's <laughs> that's that's all too juicy for me to let you keep going. So, all right, let, let's let's back it up a little bit. That's really great stuff. So, tell me a little bit. I'm curious, you know, if you can, in hindsight, when you think about this kind of rebellious time in your life, because I think these things kind of all start to add up for us. As you know, we we can look back in hindsight, but that kind of rebellious time in your life where you started to kind of um, rebel and, and maybe, you know, even before you turned to drugs and alcohol, what was underneath that? Can you, can you kind of describe, was there something going on at home or was it, you know, friends or kind of how did you kind of end up, you know, on that path to begin with? Or, or what do you think about that now? Oh, well, I mean, you know, having spoken out AA meetings for 20 years for, you know, before I became a little less involved there, I have a lot of uh, perspective and uh, reflection on it. But I mean, ultimately, I mean, if I was going to tell that story, I would say nothing at home. I mean, the le- the last thing that had anything to do with what I became was what my parents had done to bring me mm-hmm. up. So um, what happened for me, I think, was it's funny because there's, I was like probably when a freshman in high school, I was probably the most anti-drug kid that probably walked the floor. Mm-hmm. And then by the time I was a senior in high school, I'm being drugged away in a police car to a treatment center. I think for me, um, I always had a lot of anxiety and a lot of, uh, you know, self-esteem and a little. And so when I, you know, and this doesn't do this to everybody who drinks alcohol or does anything that's uh, mind altering. But when I did that, it became an answer. It like, uh, you know, it's kind of like I had the hole in my gut all of my life and I drank alcohol and the hole in my gut was gone. And I immediately had something that I was probably not going to be able not to do until I got help because it became out of hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and you know, I, I think there's a lot of different ways to think about that hole. And by the way, I, I, I want to just kind of like click on the fact that you really elevate your family as not the reason for this, right? Because oftentimes that's not the case and that, and that often is implied, but yep. you can grow up in a perfectly loving household with really great family and still end up finding yourself with addiction and these problems. And so, um, you know, that I think is an important message for people to hear knowing that, you know, as a parent, you can do everything that you, you can and this can still happen. And as a as a somebody who's struggling, uh, you know, it can be any number of things that end up, you know, kind of putting you into that spot. And and you know, I'm curious as you kind of look back and think about the whole, just to kind of you know dig in a little bit more on that. 
Do you think the hole was kind of something that you were brought into this world with? Is it a part of a bigger purpose that kind of ended up being a part of how you, you know, where you landed? Do you think it was caused by anything else? You know, talk about the insecurity in the hole as you're, as you know about it. Um, I think it was just, uh, it's just the part of the nature that I am. I mean, there's still a part of my spirit that's a people pleaser and does not like conflict. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so I, I don't think any of that was bred out of any real traumatic experience or anything. I've just kind of always had a little bit of that anxiety stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, for me, I, I don't look back and find anything. Cause I, I mean, I spoke a lot. I did a lot mm-hmm. of treatment. I've, I've been, I've, I've probably spoke, you know, hundreds of AA meetings. And so, you know, you kind of relook at that story quite a bit trying right. to capture, you know, okay, you know, but I mean, ultimately I would just say, you know, for me, you know, I probably didn't have any more angst or anxiety than a typical teenager, but I discovered that, you know, I drank alcohol and it became an answer and a solution to some of that stuff for me. And some people, you know, they would do that and it just like, didn't matter. Some of them, you know, are heal themselves. Some of them heal them through spiritual things. Some of them heal themselves through school and work and different things. I mean, so, you know, my addictive nature took me into that capacity. So, so I don't see anything super lined up that was traumatic. I just feel like, uh, I found it to be an answer. And then what happened, I eventually became, eventually had to get help because I no longer, it was way behind past an answer. It was beyond, it was to a place of the lack of control. And the unpredictability of who I became, and even um, a little bit of a, I mean, a lot of a concern, even to the people who drank with me, that I was just a little bit problematic. Maybe yeah, not so, even like re- trouble or rebellious, but just kind of like out of control. Uh huh. Yeah. So talk, talk about, you know, the landing in rehab, um, you know, getting help. Was that something? Was it an intervention? Was it your friends and family? Was it something you knew you needed? What, how, what was that step like? So I was a senior in high school and about a month into high school, um, I just got into um, a, a showdown with my parents. It was completely me being angry and not being able to like live a, or kind of confront who I was and what I was becoming and kind of lashed out at them. And I moved out and kind of lived with friends and for the next couple of weeks. And, uh, eventually I'm um, through that. I mean, I was a mess. I was just stupid. And, uh, my best drinking buddy, I mean, I went, I drank one night and, uh, I blacked out. Don't remember any of it. Next day, my, my best drinking buddy somehow got, um, a meeting with me and in, in the principal's office, he'd gone to the principal and said, I need to talk to Kenny, but I need in a space that is safe. And so we met there and, uh, he's like, listen, you're out of control. And I'm just, I can't, I couldn't at the moment conceive what he was saying. So it's kind of like, you're the guy who drinks, drink, drink with me. But mm-hmm. at the same point, it just wasn't the kind of, he wasn't in the same place I was when it mm-hmm. came to it. So he just knew I was in a space and um, unbeknownst to me and actually unbeknownst to him, the same day my parents had pressed on ruly charges in Fairfield County. And uh, when I got out of school, I was escorted to a Fairfield County police car and uh, Pickerington police car and a Columbus police officer came and picked me up and took me to Talbot Hall. So I was against my own wishes, locked up into a rehab center. Mm-hmm. And then I, I kind of did what I had been very good at is I kind of succeeded and built relationships very quickly inside there. Mm-hmm. You know, there's about 35 kids on the unit any given time back then. And I think, you know, they... I was kind of like the most likely kid to stay sober kind of kid. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Thanksgiving leave happened. Somebody snuck in LSD into the treatment center and a uh, bunch of us like entered into that and did it. And I remember sitting, we had group therapy that day and we had gender group therapy. So all the guys together and the room was probably about 15 by 15. There's probably 15 guys in there and two counselors. And this is in a day and age where you could smoke anywhere. And so it was, I was in this room and we're dealing with issues and I'm wasted and I am smoking cigarettes. And it seems like everybody's smoking cigarettes. Feels like there's 5,000 cigarettes being smoked and there's a big, huge picture window and the sun is beating in and I'm hot and I'm overwhelmed and I am a mess. And I think to myself, I never want to be this way again, mm. which is a really great moment to have of clarity 
But when you're wasted, there's no guarantee that that is the place you'll be when you're not five. Mm-hmm. God, you know, for whatever reason, that was the moment of clarity for me. And uh, I mean, that week I was suicidal because of the trouble I got in and they extended my stay. And I walked out of that rehab and my rehab counselor said, just so you know, there's not a snowball, snowball's chance in hell that you will ever stay sober 30 days consecutively in your life. Hmm. And that was 30, God, I don't even know when it was. It was 38 years ago. Wow. I've been sober since then. Amazing. Uh, really, really great story. Let me back up again. So I'm guessing that you're, you're in treatment and you're making progress you know, and you're feeling good about that. Correct me if I'm wrong. When sure. the L- when the when the LSD comes in, what what's in your brain? Kind of talk about like the thinking. Maybe it's addict thinking. Maybe it's you know divine intervention. I don't know. What was it that got you to say yes to taking that hit of acid? I think a couple things. I think at that point in time, although I was succeeding and I was pretty honest and open in, in any environment when it came to group therapy and such. I think there was still the, but, you know, it's kind of like, I'm a senior. Like, so I'm going to stay sober, but there's still grad night. I'm going to stay sober and there's still graduation and I'm going to stay sober, but there's still college. So I think there was like this door I had left open to, I'm probably going to enter it a little bit and I'll figure out how to control it. So, um, you know, a couple of guys I really enjoyed and spent time with in rehab who did that, you know, just, it just kind of seemed like a camaraderie kind of thing. And, um, yeah, I think, you know, for some reason, I mean, there, as much as you have a moment of sanity, as I described a minute ago, there is a part of the time of an addiction when you have moments of insanity mm-hmm. that don't make any sense and don't add up and doesn't, isn't, that isn't in line with anything that uh, is happening. And yet you still make a decision that's detrimental to your well being. Yeah. And, you know, I I kind of am curious, you know, there's this certain kind of like practicality or like rationalization um, that, that, you know, potentially could be there where you would say, well, you know, you're in a rehab with addicts. So drugs are going to find them their way in. Like people are clever. They're, they're good at what they do. Like it's not um, uncommon for, uh, acid to find its way into a rehab. On the other hand, there's another way to look at it, you know, knowing what kind of a pivotal moment that turns out to be that, you know, it, it, it does feel a little bit kind of hard to look at the kind of, you know, perfection in that moment too. And, and, and so I'm kind of curious, you know, how you view it that, you know, that, that turns out to change your life. Do you look at that as like a divine intervention? Do you look at that as part of a universal, you know, God given gift? I mean, how do you look at that now? Um, I'd say, I'd say two ways, um, two things. One, I wouldn't have survived six months using at the level that I was using had I not stopped. So definitely, I mean, number one, my life was salvaged because of the interruption of sobriety. Uh, Two, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it has dictated um, the trajectory of everything I've become since then, you know, just kind of everything from the way I mentor people, because that's a process by which helps you stay sober, um, to how I found myself uh, in inner city AA meetings and being really a part of a different culture than a suburban white kid grows up in and finding mentorship from different races and um, growing as a human because of that. And then eventually running a record store that was pretty much inner city related, that was easy to run based upon the relationships and the mentorship I'd be, I'd be given. So, I mean, there's just a lot of cards that line up that I do feel like are aligned from, from that time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so, okay. So, you know, you have this feeling, you know, you're, tripping on acid and you're, you're feeling like, I, I really never want to feel like this again. I never want to be in this position again. That, that seems like a, a real embodiment, you know, that you, you got that into your body, that it wasn't just like an intellectual thing. Is that true? I mean, was that kind of the pivotal moment? It's like you really felt like a feeling you just never wanted to feel again. Yeah, I think um, I think it was a journey. So, I mean, I got sober in AA, got uh, mentored and sponsored by an old timer named Howard Spence, who who really was patient with me. Um, and I, I would say the first couple of years I was sober, I stayed sober 
on self-will and um, probably the not the pats on the back I got in AA. So I just became, I mean, you, you know what I love. I'm tall, skinny, redheaded guy. So I'm really hard to miss. And, you know, this teenage kid shows up in AA and, and just does everything right. And everything goes his way. And usually most of those kids just kind of go back out and get drunk again. And this kid's staying sober. And I got asked to speak a lot. And I, you know, people noticed. And I, I got at two years sober, I just fell apart mentally. And it was kind of this process by which I realized that that's kind of when I met kind of like, I need some type of spiritual guidance because I have built this on self-will. And the reason I am like sinking mentally right now is I have built my foundation on quicksand and the quicksand is no longer going to hold. So I'm either going to have to make a decision to let go of the control of this and realize that it's beyond me or I'm going to not be uh, mentally well. Mm-hmm. And so it's, I think after two years, that's when it kind of kicked in for life. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so rehab, uh, the program, working the program and, and then turning yourself over to a higher power, which is one of the steps, right? Is, yeah, is that yeah. where, where, you know, really God started to religion became, uh, a, an important part of your life? I would say I, you know, I, it was the first time I entered into that there actually was a God. I'd been kind of a person, grew up in the church, never got it, never understood it, never conceived it, thought it was any nothing different than Santa Claus, uh, got sober and was revealed to it. And I think at that two-year mark, what happened was it was kind of like, okay, here's the deal. Everybody I love and respect in this AA thing has a God, and I don't. Everybody that's moving forward and not falling apart or setting back or getting drunk again leaves in a God. And so it just, that's the door that opened. And spiritually, I entered into that and started to believe I was serving a God. And then eventually, as you read in my bio, became a youth pastor. What happened is after about eight or nine years sober, I found that I, maybe even 10 or 12 years sober, like, AA was not enough for me. Like the what the, mm-hmm. the the spiritual counsel and guidance in there is a little uh, fluid and undefined, and and it's purposeful. Like you just, mm-hmm. you don't recognize it as a Jewish god or a Jesus or a right. Buddha because you you it's just as you understand them. Well, that just was a little too arbitrary for me to feel like I could sustain my spiritual future. And that's when I eventually entered into the church and started to walk down that path, which took a long time too. Mm-hmm. And so, so that path was your own, was your, did you grow up with, with a, a spiritual family? Did you go to church kind of, were you returning to it or is this a totally new path for you? Um, I think, uh, you know, as I mentioned, we flew back to Wisconsin every, every weekend, you know, my grandparents grew up in a town of 125 people. So we went to a church, you know, whose, you know, high attendance was 59, you know, and it was marked right up on the front and it was very liturgical, very traditional, very sweet. Um, I don't have any bad memories from that experience. I don't have any connectivity to a spiritual moment in that experience. So when I entered into church and started to discover, and that was like a three-year journey of me kind of mocking it as I went, just because I just didn't get it and didn't care, but I knew I needed something more. Um, so it was relatively, it was pretty new, you know? So, you know, if we look in and we're looking in denominational, I'm going from a Methodist kind of workspace religion to, I went to a Baptist church, was a little more salvation based and grace based and baptized after you met Christ kind of thing. So, so it was, it was a new discovery and Lori, my wife had actually discovered the church a few months before I started going. And then I went and, um, you know, started picking away at all the things that I had problems with to get to a point where I could have peace with God. And what were you doing professionally um, before you became a pastor? Um, so I, uh, so when I, when I was a teenager, I worked at the airport and actually skycap for, for a few years, um, really good money for a 17, 18, 19 year old kid for sure. Um, and then, uh, a job opening came as a counselor's aide at the treatment center that I went through. So I actually spent a year on staff working with, uh, teenagers and alcoholism, and then I left there and I ran a record store, I ran one of the old CD. Did you, grow, did you grow up in Columbus, Brent? For the most part, yeah. Yes, I, I ran one of the old record and tape outlet, CD and tape outlet stores. Yeah. 
I got hired in. I went, I got hired in at RTO. I remember this. There you go. <laughs> yep. So I thought, yeah. is that where you were? Uh-huh. I trained at Bethel. I took over Westerville. Then I took over Sinclair Road. I uh, left for a couple of years and worked uh, as a manager of a DJ company. And then I came back, stayed with the DJ company, and then ran uh, the Broad Street RTO from 1993 to 2003. Yeah, so we probably crossed paths in the Broad Street RTO. I yep. I think there was one on Hamilton Road that I also frequented, but the the, yep, R- the Broad Street was the was the closest one, right? Kind of just past town and country, right? Yep, Brown, yeah. Broad and Broad you got it. Yep, 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 yeah. Well, music was a big part of my life it is still, but you know yeah. when I was kind of in my own figuring it out, rebellious phase, party phase, you know music was was kind of uh, a huge part of my life and i loved um buying cds and oh, you know and uh yeah yeah that was a fun experience that you know it doesn't exist anymore really no i mean some of the record stores i mean spoonville does a great job i feel like there's personal yeah. touch and that's what makes a music store great is having a staff that it that, I mean, I, and honestly, if you think about it, Brett, it's kind of the way our baristas tick, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it, they're just not coffee kids. They're like, they're, they're like real coffee counselor kind of kids. You know, they're yeah. invested. And yeah. you know, when you ask them for a suggestion, it's, they haven't mailed it in. They're, they're giving you what they really love. And that's right. what the store was, right? It was like, yeah. this, hey, I know you love, I know you love uh, Duke Ellington, but there's this modern jazz guy. That's capturing yeah. some of those elements, and that customer's like not even going to listen to it. They're going to buy it, walk out the door satisfied. Right? Yeah, you know, it's a it's a great kind of uh, dot connecting for me because you know, as a just a, a customer, you know, I, I like sitting in the shop, and I like the vibe that there's a record player there, and that you know the music is being played on records. There's something about it for me. I don't know how the Kind of younger generation feels about it, but it's a sentimental thing for me. There's something kind of nostalgic and even just um, kind of peaceful about you know seeing the the motion of the record, right? Um, yeah. the, the album cover, you know. But I hadn't really connected the dots as to why you were doing that, knowing that now that was such an important part of your life and how you've kind of educated uh, or how you maybe hire. I don't know how that works, but you know your staff is very informed and they approach the coffee the same way you know they could also talk to you about coffee just like you could talk about music sure. um, that's cool yeah it's good to see that dot connecting so tell me you know you're 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 finding kind of more of a purpose it sounds like you know as you transition through these steps in life and 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 the pastor work um, tell me a little bit about you know we talked about it in the bio but but how does that start to kind of build into um, what you're doing now? Yeah, I mean, I uh, spent a lot of time at the record store. Um, I think what happened for me, it's really bizarre that I even got hired at a church. It's really bizarre to look back and think that I even had the position I had. But my uh, oldest son started playing travel baseball and was really good at it. And, um, and But before he played travel, he played rec ball. And I just started coaching just in you know rec league baseball. And I just really, it really clicked for me. Kids responded to me. Uh, you know, my wife was like, you know, this is something you're really good at. And uh, while I was working at the record store, they, um, the youth pastor at the church I was now attending and saved that um, was like, hey, listen, would you want to volunteer in youth? And I'm like, yeah, sure. So I ended up volunteering and, and kind of leading a group of ninth grade boys. And it went well. You know, I mean, I didn't know what I was doing, but I was just volunteering and you know, I love the Lord. I wanted them to love the Lord. So let's go and figure it out. And uh, eventually, a couple of years after that, uh, an opportunity came for the uh, a, a secondary youth pastor position. And so it came up and the guys like the friend, the youth pastor said, he, you should apply. And I'm like, dude, no college education. I have no ministerial background. I'm a record store manager. And uh, but I was pretty good with students. And uh, pretty involved in the church. He said, I apply anyway. So I applied and it became down between me and a guy with a master's in divinity. And they hired me. And uh, eventually, within three years, I was leading that ministry as the largest, you know, uh, uh, probably youth group of that denomination in the state. And uh, but I, but as related to your question, I think what happened is, number one, I went into this like conservative liberal i just didn't have any background right i mean i was just like okay god is great let's figure this out let's 
get teenagers to think outside their cells. That's kind of the way I'm thinking. So I don't really have a rule box and I don't really have a theological box I'm stuck in, which I think frustrated people who had been in the church all their life. And mm-hmm. it's like, I'm a little bit different, but I remember a couple of years in and actually, you know, I'd run that record store in inner city. So I just had a different vibe of life than what I was now in the suburban white church. And I remember sitting in this, uh, um, I remember sitting down on Sunday night during discipleship and there's like 25 kids in there that I adored all junior high kids. I'm like, they just don't get it. And, uh, so I went to leadership and I said, Hey, listen, I want to take kids. I want to take like a bunch of kids to the most dangerous city in America and do like home repair work. And they, they approved it. And so I, um, without any background whatsoever, I took 21 students and seven, uh, adults and we went to East St. Louis. And uh, we worked, you know, it was, a, it was a mission trip plan with a bunch of other trip, other churches. And so I had like 21 kids and probably they were on probably maybe eight different houses. So you were building relationships with other students from around the country and other adult leaders from other churches on a house. So you might get to know a Brett Kaufman leading this house. And you'd be like, man, I met Brett from St. Louis. He was great. But what happened in that trip that is important for me to share is that I had a couple kids on one house and a couple kids on a house, a couple houses down near each other. And they watched the house between them burn down in the middle of the day. And they watched this grandparent, grandmother and her four grandkids stand on the sidewalk and watch their life disappear. And for the first four days of that mission trip, it had been nothing but a mission vacation for my kids. They just like, they, they weren't getting it. Like the whole point that I was trying to get them to kind of connect with was not happening. And then this happened. And it just kind of uh, obviously not going to traumatize them as, as much as it did as a family that life was changed, but it did traumatize them. They're 13 year old kids post puberty, just like, oh my gosh, like I don't even have to conceive of the recovery of something like this. And they do. And those kids like got together that night, they pulled like $500 and the girls went and got all the sizes of the kids and by uh, that was Tuesday by Friday. They'd gone to Walmart and they bought $500 worth of stuff just to help this family get their feet back on the ground, um, you know, for underwear and, you know, just toys and those kind of things. And I saw, I just, I, I reflect on that trip. It, it probably, that's probably the most change in my life happened at that trip. And I came back and uh, it led uh, the personality of the ministry I did. It led 16 more domestic mission trips. It was the precursor to three international mission trips. I just think today I have a friend, I have a girl that a year after that, I started taking out mission trips. One, I took to Africa and right now she and her husband have adopted two special needs kids from South Africa. And they are redoing their house to make it wheelchair friendly in the shower and all of that. And the guy that's doing the construction is the first guy I took to that East St. Louis trip in 2005. And here we are 15 years later, and that relationship is bearing fruit for the needs of this woman who's gone from a 12-year-old whiny brat kid to an incredible mother of special needs children and still being blessed by the relationships that she had on that admission experience. Wow. Wow. I mean, really, really amazing. And, you know, I'm curious when you kind of look back on that, you know, it, 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 it's so obvious that these things have propelled you forward and that, you know, the events that are happening in your life along the way are propelling you into the work that you're doing, that, that whatever's next, that it's, it's, um, you're you're seeing tragedy and you're turning it into something that you know is is really powerful and and I'm just kind of curious even as you kind of back up and you follow the threads of a of a a, a baseball coach you know coaching your kids to to kind of seeing how you're good at that and then you know following that into the next thing and into the next thing. Is it, is it a, you know, knowing that you've uh, kind of grown up with insecurity and, and, and doubt and worry, you know, I just was on a, on a mentoring phone call this morning with somebody that, you know, is kind of struggling with, with taking that step of honoring themselves, of, of trusting and surrendering to maybe what they're good at and what they are energized by and, and fighting kind of the societal expectations or the parental expectations, you know, how did you find yourself 
leaning into this this life of purpose and passion and and you know were there kind of things that were running that had you questioning that or did it just kind of you know unfold or, or organically for you great questions uh, really helpful questions for people who might be listening with those difficulties so great question mm-hmm. i think uh, you know i was writing down some notes here number one i think there was just a point in time once I got sober and I realized what made me tick and that was, you know, trying to be satisfied that I've never chased money. Uh, I've only chased the love of what I've done. So, you know, treat treatment center counselor to record store, or, you know, manager to ministry to Roosevelt. Um, I've had a pretty good job trajectory. So I think that's important. I do think, you know, it's funny. I, I used to have, I have a new, I have an old desk I use now, but I used to have a a little note taped up here, but when I was coaching, some woman like wrote into the local paper and just said that like wrote this article and just said, Hey, there's a coach in town that is affirming and encouraging and changing, you know, the way people should act around their kids when it comes to a sports field. And it was about me. And I think the affirmation, like, I think it's really important to affirm where people are growing. And, you know, I wasn't, you know, I, you know, my wife was supportive. My kids were great. I loved what the kids were doing on the field. I was a non-controversial coach on the field. Wasn't a screaming dad. Um, so, I mean, I think some of that was speaking for itself. But just to have that affirmation, like, okay, here's somebody that I really value. I valued this woman's opinion. And then she kind of spoke publicly about it. They kind of like affirmed, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm doing right things. And I think, you know, that has led me to, you know, I what I try to do as much as possible is that no matter who I'm with, I try to make them feel like they're the most important person in the room. Because I think once they feel valued and heard and listened to and not distracted by the person who's distracted, but actually are engaging in the moment, they're more vulnerable. They're more willing to kind of really step into something that they want to do, but they're not willing to talk about it because they're afraid of ridicule. And I just think from my experience all the way back to drug addiction, I just don't have a place to judge where people are in life. Like sometimes, you know, you've got to be 10 days sober to get to 35 years sober. So, um, you know, so all of those things have kind of led into that. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's, it's, it is really an important thing to bring out into the open. And, you know, I think it's one of the things that is, you know, kind of from what I understand, you know, elevated in the, in the, a community in the addiction community, the sharing, right? Mm-hmm. And, and getting out of the shadow and normalizing things. You know, the, the call that I was on this morning with this, this young entrepreneur, you know, the, the kind of normalizing of what he's feeling, you know, what he thought he was feeling was really unique. And in fact, it's only feels unique because people aren't talking about it. Yep. Um, you know, you, you are a mentor. I see it, you know, you, you, you employ your team, but you also mentor your team. And I know they look at you that way. And consequently, I think they're more committed and loyal and, and, and you're doing it to, to both, um, men and women, young men and women. I think, you know, there is something that I've been kind of leaning into a little bit more that especially in the male side of things, the masculine kind of fabric of society and kind of fatherly influence tends to be a little bit more close to the vest, not sharing, not vulnerable. And, Mm -hmm. and a lot of these things don't get normalized. And so, you know, it sounds to me like you've really kind of uh, wanted to be that for people, you know, really try to uh, let them know that, Hey, no judgment. And hey, I've been there too. I've done some stuff too, um, mm-hmm. and I've certainly struggled, you know, along the way, uh, and had to figure some stuff out. You're, you're okay. It's okay. Let's talk about it. Yep. You know, yeah. Good. So, let, let, tell me about kind of then, you know, the the story into uh, Roosevelt. I, I'm curious about kind of the 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 process, the path, the journey, the the kind of ideation, you know, how did this kind of like start to come into your world that, Hey, this is the thing I want to now do. Absolutely. Um, that's funny. I think, you know, obviously it's built around justice and I, I, you know, if we want to, I always, if we want to really dig back to where I started really sensing like the, the emotion of justice, you will appreciate this would be U2's unforgettable fire. 
Mm. Like that album, mm-hmm. like made me like look at music in a way and appreciate the telling of a story in music than every anything else. So just mm. that emotional connection, I thought I'd share that. But ultimately, doing that ministry, um, what happened is in 2008, I took a group of students to Lesotho, Africa, and um, you know, long story short, I just hadn't been to an underdeveloped country in that form before. So it did the typical Western culture, white dude walking into a space where he finally saw all the privilege that he had. And I remember, I you know, I always kiddingly say that my wife says the man who got on that plane has never returned. And that just kind of like started to change my emotional pattern and my thinking pattern and the way I process things. And, you know, I remember a couple of years after that, Lori kind of said, Hey, if you ever leave to leave ministry or leave the church, I'm a, I'm a peace with that. And I was like, what is that supposed to mean? And Lori's super discerning, you know, she's just kind of like, I already know what's going on. I can see it in his spirit. And mm-hmm. I said, well, yeah, okay. And she said, I'm just telling you, when you feel led to leave, you don't have to come home and convince me. Mm-hmm. And what a gift, because there came a point where I was super restless and mm-hmm. I loved what I did. I mean, as you have already affirmed, you know, that's my bread and butter is to invest in people, especially young people. I just feel like there's something there. Mm-hmm. And to actually question whether I should stay in that field was like really emotionally disconcerting. And um, a couple of years into that, after she said that, I'm sure enough, I'm like, man, maybe I am. And so we went on a vision trip and spent a few days in Oregon and tried to sort things out and went to a conference and trying to write our story. And um, and I really loved because there was like the whole conference we did was built on storyline and I just loved how he taught it. And, you know, as you, I know your kids love movies and you love movies. I love movies. And, you know, he basically taught it like your life has to be the trajectory of the protagonist in a movie. Every movie you love, you know, no matter what it is, if it's Walter Mitty, you know, there is, mm-hmm. there's the story of the protagonist. There's something he gets at the end. There's something he wants to get to the end and there's something he has to overcome to get there. And so this whole conference is built on, you know, what is your, what is your tension and what's your inciting incident that's going to allow you to get over the tension? And I remember going to dinner that night and Lori's like, uh, so what do you think? And I'm like, uh, I think I'm supposed to leave the church without a plan. And mm-hmm. she said, yeah, I'm not feeling that. And I was <laughs> like, yeah, I'm not feeling it either. But when we talk about inciting incident, that seems to me the most dramatic way to move my, myself into something different. And so we came back from that. Had a great summer in ministry, went to Cambodia, went to Savannah, Georgia, and started to think, well, maybe that was just this kind of like test from God, kind of like, you know, if I had you, would you? In August, September, my life just bottomed out mentally and spiritually. And it was kind of like spiritually speaking, God saying, hey, listen, I told you in May and you said it out loud to Lori, like leave without a plan. And here you are miserable because you've already made a decision that you're not willing to j- jump into. And, uh, you know, four kids, minimal retirement, thinking, yeah, I, I don't think I can do that. But I started on a journey um, that we can deep dive into at any level that you want. But eventually, a couple months in, in November of 2012, I walked into the church's office and I resigned without a plan. Mm. I didn't have any idea. There was no coffee house. There was no money. There was no investment. There was nothing. And uh, they were like, hey, can you stay on a few months because we're going through a lot of transition? I'm like, yeah, I don't have a plan. I can stay on a few months. So from November to May, I just kind of marinated on what am I doing? And then eventually May, I had to make a decision. And that decision was based upon, was just that we're going to do a nonprofit coffee shop that would fund the organizations fighting the injustices of the injustices of hunger, unclean water, and trafficking. And um, so we dug into that and started to make this decision. What had happened that I think you would appreciate is that years before that, for some reason, I think it was the first time when I, once I got an iPhone mm-hmm. and there was a notes app, some reason I felt inspired to write a dream team. And basically I just kept this list of people that if I did something stupid and crazy, who would go with me or who would support me or who would affirm me. And honestly, Brent, you would be on that list today. Mm-hmm. And at that time, you know, I had, you know, 10, 12 people like that guy that's laying floor for a bishop right now mm-hmm. that was on the first mission trip. He was one of those guys, right? Just people are like, okay, Kenny's crazy. And when Kenny's crazy, it's fun. Let's go. Yeah. And, uh, and when I eventually created like the idea that those people have been traveling those few months in meetings and in coffee shops with me. And then, and so in 
So in November, July of 13, I left the church. And from July of 13 to April 2015, for the next basically 18 to 20 months, was becoming a nonprofit, figuring out coffee, finding a building, creating a team, and raising money to get the doors open. And so that's the trajectory to get the doors open. You know, it, it's it's interesting. A couple of things come up for me in just hearing you tell that story. One of which, because you mentioned you too, um, is you know Bono's uh, quote. I'm I'm not sure if you've kind of heard him speak about this, but he he said I think it was in his book that if he were to ever get a tattoo, he would have it be um, vision over visibility. That you know he he believes that kind of following your your vision for your art or your or your good work or your creative self is more important than celebrity or fame or notoriety or money or anything else and um, mm-hmm. I don't know that that's a quote that you know we've we've written on our wall at, at um, the office and you know kind of makes me think you too has also been a, um, a kind of an inspirational music a band for us for a lot of reasons I, I often have you know the other the other kind of U two story, which I, I love, comes from the documentary uh, Rattle and Hum, where uh, I think it's no, it's not Rattle and Hum. I forget what the documentary is called, but um, they basically talk about after Joshua Tree, they had to throw it all out and start over with whatever their next expression was going to be. You know, when mm-hmm. kind of the um, the kind of uh, typical path would not have been that they were on top of the world you know right. and um and, and i just kind of see that you know in you and and how you've kind of continued to say i don't know you know but this is where i'm gonna go you know you yep. had a vision you had some some faith and you, you followed it you know along the way so uh and then you know the other thing that kind of came up as i was hearing you talk is i remember when we first met it's nice of you to say I'd be on that list. I appreciate it. Um, you came into my office, and this was before you had opened Long Street. I think you might have been You're in correct. the process of, of opening it. And um, I remember thinking I, I didn't have the kind of uh, financial uh, appetite or picture or, or ability really to kind of invest in something like that. I had never really done that kind of a investment. I had pretty much put all the money I had into my own business and was still mm. kind of in the early stages of hoping that was going to work. Um, right. But I remember thinking, wow, this is a great guy. This is a really, really great guy. And I, and I don't know kind of what it means to have a nonprofit coffee shop and how that works and if it works or, you know, Neither did I. <laughs> right. But I, but I did really um, believe, you know, it, it, some part of me just believed in you. Um, and I think the reason that, you know, you, you can put people on that list, um, but part of the reason why they're there is because of you. You know, um, people don't just, you can put them there, but they don't sign up for that list unless they really, really believe in you. And so I think that's why your list would be long because people really know that you're believable and you're sincere and you're passionate and you're really you know, doing the, the good work. So uh, talk a little bit about kind of, you know, the coffee shop today. T- tell me a little bit yeah. about the business, you know, and our time left. I want to uh, make sure we talk about um, not only, you know, kind of your current business, but also kind of how you're navigating this extraordinary time. It's been challenging for everybody. Oh, you know, how, how are you navigating it and looking towards the future? Well, it's a hell of a thing to build a business on community and not be able to gather. So <laughs> we are definitely figuring that out. Um, so I, you know, the bottom line is that you know we opened in April 2015 on Long Street, and um, you know we, we, you know, with a, it was, you know, it's still kind of a pie, you know, pie in the sky dream. Like, is people are going to show up? Are people going to buy coffee? Are we going to make money? Can we donate out? And uh, the community took with with force you know i mean is that we're a release in our annual report this week and uh, the back page is literally is basically a communal picture of the roosevelt so there's mm-hmm. there's some energy in there that uh you know you'll recognize shannon harden you know you'll recognize they're just sketched illustrated we're not identifying anybody mm-hmm. but the five years has been 
it had been successful because, you know, the Chris Celeste and the Shannon Hardens and, you know, the Yogi Terrells and the Brett Goffins of the world just kept showing up and then kept bringing people into that space. And so, you know, the, the success has been exciting. It's been uh, uh, humbling. Uh, it's been beautiful. And I think a lot of the setbacks I had in ministry and other things in life have kind of, I've found the places where I can have victory and figure those out. And, um, and so, uh, yeah, so about three years in is when we started to decide we wanted to roast for ourselves. And also, I think that's why I communicated this in the bio is the, part of the reason we expanded in the roaster and into like Franklinton was we started to see the loyalty of the people that were with us. Like, okay, like this now, now the vision has gone from, Hey, let's help people in injustices. And now we have people that I think instead of barista stopovers, they might actually be here for the long haul. And how can I retain them and create a career for them? And that's how the roaster um, became something. And, uh, you know, we got blessed through our relationships that, um, you know, I had a friend whose fiance was uh, going through the Otterbein MBA program and she, they came to me and said, hey, listen, we want to we do a 13-week program. Do you have anything you want to work on? And I'm like, I need to create a business plan for the ro- a roaster. And so they created that whole business plan and it's what catalyst into private investing that actually allowed the roaster to happen. And, uh, and about that time is when we started navigating conversations with you and conversations with with other entities with Olin Tangy River Brewing. So in the five years, you know, we've expanded into we have a, another entity. It's a roaster company. We've expanded to second location in Franklinton. We've uh, licensed our brand to Olin Tangy River Brewing, where they pay a fee um, to use our menu, our brand, and our coffee. And then use a, there's a Roosevelt Coffee House inside. And then you know, in all of that, we've built these relationships in the areas that we try to affect. And we've been able to give a little over $125,000 away in five years. I think uh, we were very generous and we continue to try to be that. But um, in the times that we're in and then in the debt of what expansion costs, you know, we're reevaluating what that looks like. And, you know, when we did this annual report, one of the things we tried to measure was how many people will be impacted with the money we've given. And then how many people walked into the doors of a Roosevelt to kind of capture the vision of the mission because that, you know, one of the hardest things for a nonprofit of any, you know, cancer society, whatever it might be, is getting the name out, like getting the story out there. Like Pelotonia's done such an incredible job at, right? Well, the Roosevelt is able to do that because people come into the space. And in five years, 675,000 people have walked into that space. And so that story has an ability to really grow and manufacture itself. So that's kind of, uh, you know, five minute story of like the five years yeah. um, and then how we're measuring through like this. What are we doing through COVID-19? We're still figuring that out. We shut down the shops immediately because we felt our ability to protect our people and the people that come in was more important. And we wanted to be a part of that. As And then we just had really gracious lenders and landlords give us a little bit of reprieve to get to that moment of reopening. You know, what's been really, we, at the same time, the roaster only needs like two people. And, um, I have basically self-quarantined because I have two immune compromised people in my house. So I'm running all admin from the house, but Frank and Andrew are in the warehouse still roasting coffee. And right about the week that we closed, the roaster made a decision that it would donate a bag of coffee for everybody who purchases a bag of coffee to a healthcare professional. So, so basically you can go on our website and you can buy a $9 bag of healthcare, uh, cheap bag, and then we'll just donate it to a local healthcare professional, or you can buy the El Salvador and it triggers a donated bag to a healthcare professional. That has been something that has really helped us uh, grow as an online presence for the roaster, which had not existed. And so, you know, I just did a, a measurement tool yesterday and we did that. We're in our fourth week and we've done 1,341 healthcare bags. And so we've delivered them to OSU East and Riverside and Grant Hospital. And uh, it's just been a really sweet thing to just take a bucket of 50 bags and make sure every doctor and nurse has their caffeine needs taken care of in the middle of this crazy time. Yeah. Amazing. You know, I, I've been so kind of 
touched by the resilience and the community that exists here in Columbus and in the nonprofit space, especially um, and the mission driven organizations. You know, you you do have those numbers are really great for people to hear. They're big numbers, and you know, you've built a community. That's the kind of beauty of um, you know what you're doing. I think that what makes it unique. And coffee shops can tend to have a sense of community, but you've mm-hmm. built you know a real kind of niche and, and dedicated, loyal community, and it's and it shows up you know, in kind of the everyday, you know, you can tell who's in there. You often see people from city government, from, you know, nonprofits, you know, people that are creatives and, and, and collaborative. I mean, your community kind of um, reflects your, your vision and your, and your values and your mission, um, you know, and so seeing that now be used in a way that's adapting and creative and kind of just shifting and pivoting into this time that we're in is really inspiring. I know you've partnered with um, Joe and and Ryan and Jenny, and you know we've we've been um, fortunate to be a little bit a part of that too. And Absolutely. you know it also it, it also speaks to you know kind of the alignment with gravity. You know that's why we're so happy to have you there because all of those visions and values were shared and. Um, you know, I uh, I just uh, you know love having you there, and I know the community loves having you there, and we can't wait to get you back. There's going to be a lot to uh, to kind of pent up enthusiasm to get back to life, but you know we'll Remember do it. That. We'll do it the smart way, and you know I I, I want to give you a chance to make sure people know you know where they can contribute and where they can um, uh, you know help out and 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 support you and and the others and. And um, I can tell you that uh, we, we want to make a commitment. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna buy a hundred bags of coffee, and um, and uh, you can count me in for that, and and encourage other people to do the same thing. Um, but um, yeah, any final thoughts or anything you want to make sure people hear? I've really enjoyed having a chance to uh, have you share your story today. Well, thanks a lot. Uh, let me just say a couple things and cut me off if you need to. I think I was talking to Alan Proctor yesterday and we were just talking about, you know, what this has all looked like. And, you know, one of the things we tried to do is continue the story in, as we've been closed in the shops, you know, so the, the you know, the Indiegogo campaign gives, they gave us that opportunity. The, uh, the healthcare bags are given that opportunity. And then we, this was our five year anniversary month. So we've been, we were, we were supposed to have a big old bash this month. So we've been revealing. So, you know, we did the, the, those campaigns and then homage released a shirt that supports mission and one line and us. And, and so we've kind of been, we were promoting that and then we've been revealing our annual report and we've revealed our video clips. And this week we'll reveal um, the full video package of what we were doing. And then we're just trying to create all kinds of things. So I think the reason I'm telling that is I feel like he was just saying, what would you tell other social enterprises? I'm like, you can't stop telling your story. Like mm. it doesn't stop March 15th and start again, June one, like you got to tell you and people are going to want to re-engage that story in person as soon as they can, if they know what's going on. So, you know, we've been doing a lot of that work. We're, we're going to work with one of our nonprofits, potentially create a blend with them. Um, we're doing a, uh, that mural that's behind me as you look that you know is in gravity. We've created a PDF. This haven't, I haven't even told anybody this yet. We created a PDF and we're going to have a coloring contest. So we're going to post that publicly and then give a free year of coffee to whoever uh, colors the most beautiful version of that. Um, and so we're just doing a, as much as we can to tell that story. So that when we reopen, you know, as much, you know, I, you know, me, I, I just, I love being around people. So this is, I, I love my family, but there's only six of us in the house. So I'm ready for more. So ways you can support us, uh, you know, uh, with the Roosevelt, uh, the Roosevelt coffee house, uh, the website's rooseveltcoffee.org. Um, you know, right now, I mean, you could uh, buy gift cards on there and that just creates some cash flow for when we do reopen. The website for the for our roaster is roosevelt.coffee, which is just awesome. Uh, keeps it really simple. And, uh, you know, on there, you're going to see eight to 10 different single origins or shirt selection, uh, different things that are happening right now. Um, and then we're, we're debuting. By the time this comes out, hopefully we'll have a new Nicaragua, a new Mexican and a new Colombian coffee. And we're going to have a a lot of fun with those and uh you know just uh 
that's the story. I think that that covers it. Good, good, good. There's a lot there, and uh, and yeah, keep it up. I love it. Keep telling your story. You know, that's that's really good advice, and you know. There's no quit in you, you know, when you're fueled by passion and purpose um, and resilience, you know, you, you keep going and you keep telling that story and kudos to you guys. And thank you for, for doing that and inspiring others to do that and doing all the good work that you do and uh, sharing your story. Kenny, it's awesome uh, to be with you. I wish we were, you know, doing it over at Gravity, but we'll right. be back soon and um yeah, it's good. To, it's good to be with you today. So thank you. Appreciate your Thanks time. Thanks for your support, my friend. Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at the Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.